Welcome to the Rip Hard Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We've been running conversations with some of the best guitar players in the game for over a year now. Not only has this been amazing for myself and A.L. to learn from, but it's been amazing for us to share this vast knowledge with all of you. If you enjoy what we're doing, then please share us with your friends, and we especially love iTunes reviews. Remember that you can tag us if you want to share the podcast on your Instagram. You can find me at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E-M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S. And you can find Al at Al Levy URM Audio. That's E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. Always remember that we will never charge you for this podcast. So please keep listening and enjoying. All we ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's go on to this week's guest. Hello, everybody. Our guest today is Malcolm Pugh, who is the guitarist for the band In Fairy, which is one of the sickest technical death metal bands out there right now and co-owner of the label Artisan Era, which... I'd say is one of the coolest extreme labels out there as well. So very excited to have him on. Let's do this. Malcolm Pugh, welcome to the Riff Art Podcast. What's up, dude? Thanks for having me. Hello, Malcolm. Dude, so I actually did listen to the new and fairy stuff you sent me. Sick. Which I don't know. Well, you run a label, so maybe you do actually listen to stuff that people send you. (laughs) But uh, you know how it is. Like when people send, send me stuff, it's... uh. Jury's out on whether I'm actually going to listen, For but sure. I actually listened and it's uh fucking sick. Thanks, dude. I wouldn't bring it up if I didn't think it was. I, <laughs> I, I dodged the issue, but uh, I love that it's, uh, it's like super tech. However, actually music, which I have to say that because super technical stuff isn't always also music. Sometimes it's just super technical stuff. For sure. <laughs> yeah. So I really appreciate it when people are able to actually just make music that happens to be nuts like that. And oh, yeah. uh, and it's got like a very, very defined, almost neoclassical kind of element to it, but without being schlocky. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> like yeah. Neoclassical can get like, it's like the tasteful version of it. Right, right. This is very cool stuff. Thanks, dude. Yeah, I mean, the neoclassical stuff has always been like not a strong influence, but like, of course, you got your like, you know, Ingve Malmsteen, you know, you're a guitar player, you're like 12, 15, however old you are when you find him. And then, you know, you see sweeps for the first time and you're like, okay, this changed my brain. Let's figure it out, you know? So, <laughs> yeah, but, but like, and yeah, I loved him too. Right. I don't imagine you wearing like a, a roughly oh, no. shirt and stuff. <laughs> It'd be like that episode of Seinfeld, dude. You know, just come out on stage and people are like, what is that? And the captain's shirt or whatever. <laughs> you know, puffy. Like it doesn't evoke that image for me, which a lot of the neoclassical stuff does. Yes, it is good. Like I, I imagine ponytails and vests and fr- right. froofy shirts <laughs> right. and stuff. And yeah. uh, that just kind of kills it for me. But like some people have been able to pull it off to where it just sounds badass. And uh, you're in that category. I appreciate it. I think uh, Archspire kind of does that same thing. Yeah, I agree. I like the the taste of it. You know what I mean? You know, going full neoclassical 
I'm not even good enough to do that. It's just kind of like, just like a little bits of it, you know what I mean? Just to flavor it up a little bit from the, the regular old riff salad that we have, you know, just add, sprinkle a little neoclassical on there and call it a day. <laughs> Man, I just think harmonic minor is really fucking cool. It's oh, my it's favorite. so good. <laughs> so good. Well, it's interesting because like, Brown, you bring up Lydian a lot. I feel like everyone has kind of like a... Uh, scale sound that they gravitate towards naturally like it's not it's not like a decision right it's like just what you gravitate towards and i've found that a harmonic minor just always made sense to me like it just it just definitely yeah it's just like notes want to go in that direction like it's weird yeah i'm I'm the same way it's like anytime i pick up a guitar it's just like that's where i start just harmonic minor and minor and like every once in a while some phrygian stuff but like I'm basic, <laughs> but I just love it so much. That's like, that's the best starting point for me. It's funny because you bring up Lydian and it's like, I hardly ever play in it because it sounds wrong to me. <laughs> it's, yeah, just because it sounds wrong to me. It's like Steve Vai can have that. You know what I mean? He can he can keep it. I gravitate more towards like Malcolm, like harmonic minors, Phrygians, Phrygian dominance. And, you know, recently the even the double harmonic major scale has some cool shit in it too, which is just the same as... Same kind of feel. It's like a harmonic minor top end with a Phrygian dominant bottom end. So it's like this really cool Eastern-y, Egyptian-y sounding thing, which works perfectly for death metal, actually, in my opinion. It's like gets you in the territory of like Nile. Hell yeah. I'm going to have to dive, dive deeper in that. I always like missed over like the, the melodic minor stuff. I need to freshen up on that. So is that just like, so a flat second, flat six, like a major scale with a flat second and a flat six? Exactly. That's the double harmonic major or the Byzantine or whatever it's. I don't know how to pronounce that word. Byzantine, Byzantine. That actually is what I gravitate towards more than harmonic minor, actually. Interesting. I, I always thought of them as 014 riffs. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 014 riffs. Which is also Phrygian dominant if you have the flat six with the flat seven. Yeah, but you need that sharp seven. Oh, yeah, because you love harmonic minor, they. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 014 with a sharp seven. Hell yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know about you guys, but have you ever felt like just the standard is like hard to work with? I always felt like it doesn't matter which one of those modes it is, like even regular minor. Like I have a hard time like understanding how to make good music with it, like without that sharp seven or whatever, like there's something that doesn't resolve quite right in my brain with like your standard shit. <laughs> I guess it kind of de- depends on the song, but uh, usually the, the basic stuff is like kind of easy for me, but then every once in a while I'll have to, you know, I'll have to change it up and, you know, add that in there. I think I know what it is actually. It's the pull of the sharp seven to the one that you really like the sound of. It sounds evil. Yeah. It just forces it into that. And same with the flat second. It really makes it want to pull back to the root. And without that, I think probably to your ears, Al, it probably just sounds a little bit standard. But you know what? When other people do it, I don't have a problem with it. Yeah. So <laughs> I've heard other people do stuff in, you know, standard scales, standard keys beautifully with, you know, no altered notes and somehow they make it work. But I just haven't been able to. And I think you might be right. It could be the added tension of getting that close to the root. Yeah. And also it might have to do with like, like your expectation of like what you want your music to sound like versus like what the basic shit 
actually sounds like. You want to keep it basic and use the, the basic stuff, but like it's just not there. So it's like a way for you to navigate through the sounds to find exactly what you want. And then now you're on like this weird scale and you're like, well, I guess, <laughs> I guess that's home now. You know what I mean? Home's a weird place. Yeah. <laughs> what you were saying before about like, you know, everyone having their specific flavor of scales and modes that, that they use and kind of just gravitates towards, you know what I mean? I think that's part of it is, um, you know, like in your brain, how you feel when you write music, it's just, you know, that's the black hole right there. And you just get sucked right into it. And some, I mean, I never write in major shit. You know what I mean? Well, not never, but like not on purpose. You know what I mean? Gotta <laughs> be a full moon. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> I'm not, you know, <laughs> I, um, I just never start with it. And if a riff sounds major, it's like in my brain, it's not major at all. I'm just stumbling. It's the relative that. minor, right? Yeah, you see exactly. It as the, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Same for me. I can't, I find major just too fucking cheesy. Yeah. It's like, I love listening to it. Like, you know, when, when some reggae is playing in summer, it's like, that right. sounds fucking great. Or some UB40 or something, you know, it's great. But yeah. I don't know how anyone can possibly be that happy to write something that happy. Dude, yeah, I, totally I, I don't get it. <laughs> There's no way. They're hiding something. You know what I mean? What are you hiding? It's all the facade. I agree. <laughs> you know, I was uh, thinking about this the other day because I've been around musicians recently. They're like professional musicians who, I guess, play covers and like gospel stuff. And they're really great at it. But they don't have any darkness inside of them. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I don't, I don't get it. Like, I don't, like, they don't have this, like, this, uh, this black hole of hate that just, like, drives them to the darkness musically. Yeah. Which to me has always been, like, the most natural thing ever. You know, lots of metal people say that uh, they don't consider themselves angry people, but this, like, expression just... It's just this natural thing and then it doesn't come out in normal life. But these musicians have been around, like they don't have that. It's, and I, <laughs> and that's why I have such a hard time understanding it. Cause how do you just create stuff that's just happy and feels good? Like what's going on? You're yeah, right. Maybe they are hiding something. Yeah. I think they are, man. Like it's kind of like a, under their, under their house or something. <laughs> it's like a comedians, for example, like, uh, I follow a bunch of comedians and stuff like that. And they always talk about like how like shitty their lives were growing up. And that's how they like kind of deal with it. Like, you know, most comedians are always going to have like a, a weird background or like a bunch of character flaws and shit like that. So I think like with heavier music or like not even heavy, but like darker music or those kind of moods that like people write, I think flows into that. The people who write the darker stuff, not all of them, of course, but like, there's probably a little little something back there in the background that like helps build that and then that expression comes out when you when you play perhaps. I mean that's the closest thing I can think to but like writing straight up just happy like you know joyful victorious music is just <laughs> something I I don't understand. <laughs> I don't either. It's the word victorious, man. The word victorious just, it, that's what it is, isn't it? It's just like... Yeah, it's like this fanfare, you know? It's like... A <laughs> yeah. I do love it when I hear it. That's the most annoying thing. When I hear it, I'm just like, that is so amazing. And I think that maybe I feel that it's so amazing is because I can't fucking do it. That's probably... <laughs> <laughs> well, when you hear it done really, really well it sounds like an authentic expression right for sure exactly like when you hear you hear it in soundtracks or like 
pieces of music that are like so part of everyone's psyche that you don't even question it, like the wedding march or something. Yeah. They've just been around for so long and people just use them every single time someone's getting married. I could never write something like that. It would never cross <laughs> my mind to write something like that, but it is pretty perfect. Like it uh, sums it up perfectly. And uh, I'm blown away by the fact that someone can do that. Absolutely. You should uh, you should do a course in Riff Hard to like make someone write a wedding theme. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good idea. Well, we do we do kind of do stuff like that. Like the the a couple of months ago, we had to write in. Uh, we did a brief so that everyone had to write in Mixolydian flat six, the Wonder Scale, which is a really strange sounding scale that's not major or minor. And we we do a lot of those kind of briefs where trying to write outside of your comfort zone. And I found that's really helped a lot. You know, I think that maybe the reason we don't gravitate towards these things is maybe that we just don't even try. That's very true, actually. You might try once and then you're like, yeah, you know what? It's I like my alien. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep it simple. Yeah, sometimes uh, going outside the box is like one of the best things you can do for like your musicianship. You know what I mean? Just like being here in Nashville, there's so many cover musicians that just like rip and shred like bluegrass and all this crazy shit. I won't say I'd never, but I'm not going to sit here and try to like pluck Chicken on a banjo pick. or anything like that. <laughs> I think if I were to try to do that and like grasp it a little bit more, or open up some stuff that like, you know, maybe I wouldn't have stumbled upon in my own playing. I'd like to encourage everyone to try that. I don't do that often, but whenever I'm doing like orchestral pieces or something like that, I'll go back and listen to some of my favorite stuff and, and just try to reanalyze it and get into that zone and and look for something new that I can apply to what I'm doing. And I think, you know, that uh, mindset is super helpful to growth. You know what I mean? Instead of being complacent. I agree. That's my uh, method for overcoming writer's block, actually. And it never let me down is I always felt like anytime that I would like write music, there'd be like, uh, I guess, a reservoir of creativity that all the work from that time period was drawing from like an album or a series of songs or whatever. And towards the end of, I guess, that writing period, two things would happen. Either it just like run out of ideas and start repeating ideas or like some song would come out. That's like the culmination of everything, but then it would be over. Like yeah. that cre <laughs> creativity would be tapped. And I found that the way to renew it, um, and it always worked, would be to go and learn something completely outside of anything I do. Like learn something musically interesting that's got almost nothing to do with what I do. So like don't go learn Rust in Peace or something. <laughs> like go learn a, a Beatles song or go analyze a Danny Elfman tune or something. Always worked. It's kind of like a, you are what you eat, right? But you are what you listen to as a musician. You know what I mean? So you have to take in the musical vegetables, if you will, and, uh, you know, eat your Brussels sprouts with your ears, I guess. And then, you know, you get all healthy and stuff and turn into Guthrie Govin or some shit. <laughs> <laughs> he definitely eats his vegetables. Yeah, man. It's funny that you say about trying different things. Like we've been writing the new Monuments record recently. And one thing that I've never had the opportunity to do is amend songs after vocals are done. So... Yeah we got a vocal line and I was like, ah, it's not really doing it for me. Is it the vocal line? Nah, it's probably me. So then I went back, started 
changing around what had happened. And I ended up changing key three times within a chorus. <laughs> nice. And it just, because we'd never been able to do that before, it never gave me the opportunity to experiment from that angle. So even trying things in different orders can make a huge difference, I believe. Oh, definitely. Whenever I first got my first doll, which was a garage band on like a Mac mini, <laughs> that like changed everything for me. Like being able to record something and then it be there and you could see it and then like construct it and move it around and, and build a song as opposed to like, you know, being in your bedroom and like putting riffs together in your head and be like, all right, well, that, I think that song works. Hope I remember it tomorrow. Exactly. Being able to play around with stuff like that is like such a luxury that, you know, I think a lot of people overlook. And then you get to experiment with stuff, like you said, like changing a key three times in a chorus. That's that's a lot, but it's probably a reason you did it because it's probably badass. You know what I mean? So like... <laughs> You know, new stuff like that is, is uh, at least for me, I could never do that without like sitting down and recording it and like playing around with it. You know what I mean? So, you know, being able to go outside the box and have a doll kind of go hand in hand in my, in my book. And I think that's, that's awesome to not like something and go back and then re and create something that you, you never would have stumbled upon before. Yeah, it's pretty magical. But then there's also just something you said then about the fact that now you have a DAW and you would hope that you would remember the riffs that you would write tomorrow, you know, when you sat in your bedroom. There's something magical about that scenario as well, because I tend to find that I write my best riffs when I'm not sat in front of a computer because you've automatically got the mindset of, I need to record something right now. Whereas if I write something like in my house, not in my studio, and I have to remember it until tomorrow, it's a different mindset. And it really, really helps me for writing because I haven't got the mindset that I need to press fucking star key space bar in a minute to get this down, even though I haven't fucking got it yet. <laughs> yeah, you're like crafting you know? it with your with your your muscle memory and your mind and you're yep. like turning it into something that you can then uh, sculpt in the DAW as opposed to just like fucking around with a riff and then like, okay, well, I know this is going to repeat this many times or whatever. And you might, yep. you might've, uh, if you only did it at home before you got into the DAW, you're probably like, well, let's add something in between this before we repeat it and, and so on and so forth. You're kind of like creating a good foundation that you, you can use later, you know? Yeah, I, I totally agree with that for sure. One thing that a DAW I felt hurt um, with my writing, and I'm a huge proponent of DAWs. I love it. I think it's great. For sure. But one thing that I found it hurt was that sometimes I would write stuff where the riff or the melody or whatever, the main part, couldn't stand on its own it, because you could dress it up so much, yeah. the arrangement and the effects and all that stuff that you could trick yourself into thinking that something is a lot cooler than it is. But when you're by yourself and not able to record it, that riff's got to stand alone. And then when you are able to then take that, then record that and build off of something that can stand alone, you're going to have something that's way, way better in my experience. I totally agree. My solution for that is like, you know, I'll let somebody hear some shit I'm working on. And as soon as I press play, I know if it sucks or not. You know what I mean? Yeah. If I'm like, if I'm in the same room with them and I'm like, okay, check this out. And then I hit play and it starts. I'm like, fuck, it's not good. <laughs> I don't know if you guys experience that, but there's an aura. Does it even have anything to do with their reaction or is it just, you know, like you're just like, no, I just know that like when, when push comes to shove, it's not good enough for me to be showing them. And I know that as soon as I press play, then it's like, okay, that's good information. Glad we didn't release this, but you know, that, that I can go back and, and, and reanalyze. But yeah. And I also had that same problem of, you know, adding too much stuff and maybe 
actually, I think my whole discography is guilty of what you just said about being able to dress shit up. But yeah, you know, sometimes you just got to dress shit up, man. Put some layers on it. <laughs> you know, put some harmonies on there. Uh, it's, you know, it's a cool melody or whatever. But if we put a harmony on it, it's going to make a gold record. <laughs> well, oh, I, I agree. I love that shit. I think that dressing shit up and adding layers is, it's an amazing thing. I just think that people can get carried away with that before they have anything to even build off of. Yeah, definitely. I try to write often and like a lot of the stuff, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll show the guys, hey, you know what? I wrote something today and I'll let them listen to it. And it's pretty incomplete. And it's just like basically a, a backbone. And then I know I have to like, go back and work on it and kind of just refine it and refine it and refine it um, as it is without like adding the whole, you know, uh, bells and whistles and stuff like that. And for me, it's, it's a process of just like always sanding it down until it's exactly what it's supposed to be. Uh, like even by the note, you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. That's the unfortunate level of like, oh man, this riff is sick, but you know what I should do? I should change this one palm mute right in the middle. That no one's going to notice and it's going to make it way better. And that's how my brain works is like every note has to be like this weird, like it has to fit this weird uh, ideology I have about a riff before like it's ready. You know what I mean? What do you mean by ideology about a riff? I don't know. Like, I guess to me, there's just something about a riff that it has to have. I, I don't know if I could put it into words, but like, you know, that has to be like, if I'm sitting here and I'm writing or recording, whatever, it has to like really like send a feeling my spine when I'm like knowing that it's good. You know, it's not just like, well, here's a riff I wrote. I guess that's good enough. It's always like, well, here's a riff I wrote. Let's keep draining the re- the reservoir until the riff is something else that's like what it's supposed to be in my brain. Yep. As opposed to just like, well, that's a riff. It's good for an it average exists. riff. Yeah, exactly. It has to be like a next level. So, I mean, there's been riffs that I've spent months and months on that are just like <laughs> slowly evolve over time, adding small little details that at one point it was just like a chord progression idea. And now it's like a full riff section segment thing. Only question I have about that though is have you ever thrown out, you know, baby with the bathwater, but with that process, like, is there ever going too far? Oh, 100%. Or do you just know, like when you, when you get to that point where the riff is like the riff, the way it's supposed to be, you know, so you stop. On our last EP, we had a, a song called uh, Eldritch Evolution. It's like the, I think it's the second track on it. There was a, a riff in that song that I really loved and I was super attached to it. It changed the time up a little bit and I thought, yeah, dude, you know, that is what it needs to be. And I felt like that for a long time because I was married to it. I had been working on it for months after months and then it dawned on me that this riff makes the song suck ass. <laughs> <laughs> so we took it out and then that became like one of the fan favorites off the EP. Just from like that one simple thing, like the whole song is just like it is now, except for two times in the song, we played a, the riff section that it was in the same key. Timing changed a little bit, but it was kind of odd and, and kooky. I mean, I thought it was kind of cool, but as soon as we took it out, the whole song made sense. And, It's a matter of like being as real with yourself as possible and sometimes, you know, listening to your bandmates, (laughs) you know what I mean? Listening to the guys you're working with. It's funny you say that, like there's one riff that I'm still gutted about from Gnosis. Funnily enough, I recorded it again just before this podcast. (laughs) Gutted in which way? Gutted that it got removed or gutted that it's in there? 
It's never been used. Yeah. Ah. That's the thing. So it was originally in one of our songs called Empty Vessels Make the Most Noise, and it just didn't work. So took it out. There's actually a, an evolution of that same riff, but it, again, wasn't in triplets. It was in the normal version of it, so it still wasn't the same riff. But I've just re-recorded it again today. Yeah. And I think I've got a song that will finally fit in on the fourth album. <laughs> so I think that like sometimes yeah, it is, even if you really like a riff, if it doesn't work for, or serve the song, then understanding that it's not serving the song doesn't mean it's the end of that riff. It just means, hey, I need just to write something else for this. It's almost like, you know, you wouldn't yeah. have mint with your orange. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Doth has a song called The Unbinding Truth, which... Uh, I think is one of our cooler ones. And I remember it used to have like this minute and 45 second long instrumental thing that happened before vocals even come in. Like in addition to about 30 seconds of intro that's there now, it was like a lot of stuff happening yeah. before vocals came in. And when we went to the studio, the producer literally just chopped that shit out and i was kind of pissed yeah because i worked so hard on it but it fixed the song so much just cutting out that minute and 45 seconds of crap fixed it and it's hard to do that to yourself especially if you've worked really hard on something you kind of like develop attachments to riffs and you kind of understand them in a way other people don't so like it's yeah. hard to do, but sometimes other people are right about that stuff. Yeah, dude, I did a whole album, our fourth album, Revenant. I was trying to put a lot of effort into like making the album feel like a journey because it's like based on Dante's Inferno and shit. Oh, sick. I didn't realize this until after the fact of like how bad I was blowing it throughout the whole album. But like, I guess I, I was I was blowing it in the sense that like all the song, all the songs have like incredibly long intros you know we're not opeth so we can't get away with it as as well so that was one of the things that like when we set to write this new album it's like maybe they got enough long intros for the rest of our career maybe we gave them all the intros they could ever need that are like you know a minute or longer those are kind of the things that you gotta like hopefully cut them out before you do the thing but like gotta learn from those things happening for the next time you know what i mean but yeah i, I totally understand like literally all the intros from our fourth album could probably be cut out and it wouldn't change anything for anybody who heard it for the first time. And I would have been sad, but you know, it probably wouldn't have been better. Because <laughs> we're talking about how long we're spending on riffs and we get attached to them because we've spent X amount of time working on them. It's always difficult to really think a riff is good if it came out in 10 minutes. Like we, ne we don't associate that same level of, I guess, care Right. And it's, I think that that's also a curse in itself because obviously we associate time with something being good. Have you ever written a song that like in one day and you thought, ah, this kind of sucks. I need to play around with it. And then you come back a month later after spending hours and hours and then you're right. The original's fucking better. Yeah, one, <laughs> has that's, that ever it, happened? That, that, that has happened. And it's disappointing, you know, kind of like that one song I was just talking about, but it's happened many of times where like, that's why I don't throw away riffs, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I put the time ah, into yes. it and I, and I know that like this riff will work. It's just not for the, the song at the time, but it happens all the time. It's just like every album that we do, there's always like right before we get down to the nitty gritty of like recording. It's like, well... I guess we can use this for like the next album. I'll make this better. You know, I always try to like write 
you know, double the amount of songs or at least collective material that we need for an album just to like be able to get the cream of the crop in there. And then we have something else to work on later and double up on and rinse and repeat that way. Well, if it's not cream of the crop, why keep it? It's not cream of the crop in the context that it's in within the song. Okay. Another example from, from our last EP, the very first song that was meant to be on our 2014 album. And this EP came out last year and it took me and Mike four years to get this song to the point of us being happy with it. And I guess, you know, that album came out in 2014. We had started writing an album, you know, like 2011. We weren't working on it every day or anything, but like over time, it, it turned into a really awesome song. Um, but if we had thrown it away, we wouldn't have that song and it wouldn't have morphed into the song that it became. You know what I mean? It's not even the initial idea anymore, but it's like the foundation of what it wants, what's, what it once was. It's now this thing that we're super proud of. And, uh, you know, that's why. I hate throwing away riffs because there's always <laughs> potential. You know what I mean? It, it just depends on like what the context is for that piece of music. Yeah. You know, I think. I know Brown is sitting there being like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I am and, smugly smiling over here. Yeah, yeah. Yes. But AL obviously says to throw away riffs and I agree to a certain extent. Obviously not everything you're going to have is, is complete gold. However, if there's even just an inkling of something, you're like, some, there's something in this. I'm not ready to make this good yet. So I think that sometimes you just need to fester on some things. It's kind of like, um, you know, when you're angry in the moment, it's best to wait a few hours to think logically. I feel like those Absolutely. riffs are kind of like that. You got to get them time, you know? But I mean, some riffs are just shit. Yeah, especially in major keys, you know? <laughs> you write riffs in major, major keys, keys. <laughs> just toss that shit out right now. <laughs> All you listeners at home, toss that shit out. Uh, Don't even do it. <laughs> There are some really, really bad riffs out there, and those really, really bad riffs probably could be better if they would have just saved them and worked on them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or they could have thrown them away and That's written true. something else. <laughs> there That's is true. that. See, it's 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 kind of difficult to know which way to go, isn't it? I know that AL is solidified that he'll just press delete. I give you shit. I definitely <laughs> have. I mean, one of the songs on the first Doth record. I wrote when I was 16 in my high school death metal band. So like I've saved stuff too. I think that's different though. That was a finished song, right? It was a finished song that was really ahead of where my high school death metal band should have been. I just grabbed it because it was cool. Like there's some riffs on like the album we did with Sean Reiner that uh, I wrote years and years before that and just never found a good place for them. But I knew they were cool. That's the thing. I knew those parts were cool. And there just wasn't a good context for them. Yeah. But to me, that's very, very different than something being substandard and just keeping it around like I'm hoarding or something. For sure. I definitely don't hoard it like that. My system is red, yellow, and green. We've spoken about this before. It is a great system. I'd love to hear this system. Yeah, it's good. I like it. So basically, you know, you can just change tracks with different colors right. within your DAW. So I label up full songs in different colors other than red, yellow, and green. And then yeah. everything that's gray is usually throw away riff and I'll check it and delete as I go through. But with the red, yellow, and green, green means this riff's really great. It just doesn't have a home. Okay. Yellow says this riff has a lot of potential. 
but it's not quite there yet. So this is something to work on at a later date. Red usually means I think this is shit, but there might be something in this worth keeping. Right. I'm not sure what it is yet, but just give it, maybe I've written something else and then I get stuck, write as block, go through some of those riffs and maybe it will spark something. Yeah, that's very similar to what I do, except for not the red, yellow, green, but I have a folder that's just like, that I tag crap riffs or like, just like, <laughs> <laughs> I know they're not crap, but like, you know, like they're not developed, you know what I mean? But they have potential. And then like, you know, stuff that's like super developed and then stuff that's like, oh, this is basically a song. I kind of do the same thing, but that's interesting with the red, yellow, green. I'll have to try that out. I like that. Okay. I misunderstood. I thought that the red was this is shit. It is. Well, no, it's not this is shit. This is kind of shit, but there's kind of something cool. Maybe in the future I'll develop it. But what about stuff that is just like straight up? This is shit. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Delete. Okay. All right. So stuff does get deleted. Yeah. But not like loads of stuff. Like the thing is, is that if I have thought while I'm playing the guitar that this isn't worth pursuing, then it doesn't even get to that stage. Right. You won't even record it. No, I won't even fully. It might just be a guitar track and I'll be like, delete. Won't even think about it. But then the red means I've spent time on it. There's clearly something here. It's not working right now. It's a bit shit, but maybe there's something in this later. Okay. So green is, I'm definitely working on this. What about songs that are actually like coming together? Are they just not color coded? They're color coded, but in a different color. So then it's in blocks. So you okay. see it on the DAW, you know, in in fact, I mean, I can share the screen with you and you can see it because I've actually got Cubase open. Yeah, I want to see it. I've never seen it before. We've been talking about this system for a long time and I've never seen it before. I don't think there's any green ones in this one because it's a new project. So let me just share my screen so you guys can see this. Sorry to the viewers at home. <laughs> well, we'll, give them a, we'll give them a good description. <laughs> So you like the drums. I can see that. Yeah. Well, that's why I only do the drum one because normally I'm zoomed in. So uh, when I okay. zoom, go to the top, then I'll just do it like that. So basically this is a full song, I believe. Right. For some reason okay. it's in green. These ones aren't labeled yet. They are songs. And then blue for a full song. And as I said, I've not color coded these ones yet. Another song there, but they're not color coded yet. That's awesome. So give me an example, like real quick, just and undo it of like, okay, so something's red and something's yellow. I would just color it in um, something like this. So I just do red saying, oh, that's not great. That's not great. And then say something I need to work on. Maybe all of this is cool. And then green would be for if there's something in that. So that's basically how I would do it. It'd look The whole project would look like this in different colors. That's a great visual tool, I think. And only the drum track. I was figuring you would do everything. I used to do everything, but um, I've recently become pretty lazy with highlighting everything. Don't want to scroll down. <laughs> yeah, it's implied. Well, I mean, I mean, look at how many tracks I have. Yeah. There's hundreds of tracks. Things are constantly getting added to, so I just tend to label it just with the drums now. So there's no shortcut? Probably. I, dude, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I get it now. Yeah. That's how I thought it worked. It used to be whole the whole sections. For most of the time, I'm going to be at the top, probably doing something to the drums, so I just label the drums now as it means I'd have to highlight everything. Yeah, that's interesting that uh, you're writing the whole album in one session. I've never tried to do that. Well, if you think about it, it's the easiest way to chop between riffs. If you have something, you don't have to open up another project, drag it right. in, find it. Yeah, it makes complete sense. I just got a computer a while back ago that's like not dog shit. So like maybe I should uh, try that. <laughs> <laughs> when you start getting to bar 20,000 is when your computer yeah. will hate you. <laughs> Especially if you don't clean out the folder and every single right. take is still in it. Yeah, 
yeah, that sounds that sounds crazy. But yeah, I, I might have to try that and just uh, open up the whole the whole session and you have everything for the album. That sounds really great. Makes sense. Yeah, I mean that's that's how we re- retract the new album with Dave. It was like one one session. It makes a lot of sense. By the way, Dave, we're talking about Dave Otero. Is fucking awesome. He is a god amongst men. I love him. Yeah, uh, he's underappreciated. I mean, I think that everyone that is aware of his work knows he rules, and I think that his profile is growing. But he's a lot better than people oh, yeah. give him credit for. No, he's he's great. He was he's great to work with, and his ideas are super sick, and he gets it. You know what I mean? It's not like it's not like you're working with a guy who's just hitting record and then, okay, well, this is good or this is bad. Do it again. It's like, you know, he's like, you know what, what if we did this? And like literally like 95% of the time is like, yeah, that's a great idea. Do you think it requires somebody who's like of the culture to know how to 100%. properly produce extreme music? One, 100% dude. I think so too. Our earlier recordings, you know, we had a buddy do it and he's awesome engineer He's worked with like huge, huge bands like the Alabama Shakes and shit. You know what I mean? Back in the day earlier, like this type of metal, like it wasn't easy to to record. So it didn't come out as well as like we hoped. You know, I mean, this is like early MySpace days where everything was just like super triggered and quantized and stuff like that. So all of our albums didn't have that because none of us knew how that was even a thing to that level. You know what I mean? Not that that was good or bad, but like being able to work with someone on the opposite spectrum that's like, you know, a musician themselves had a band, did awesome awesome stuff, got into recording and just worked with like some of the sickest bands in the genre. That's so valuable. If you have a, a band and you want to work with someone to record and produce your album, you have to go to somebody who like knows what you're going for. Otherwise you're fucked. I was doing a podcast with Putney like a year and a half ago, and we were talking about what he thinks is like one of the most important things that he brings to the table. And he said that it's that he understands the culture of the music. Uh, So like he actually understands these bands and uh, what they want. And I think that with Otero, it's the same thing. Like, whether it's technical death metal or black metal or whatever, he just gets that shit on a level that only someone who's in it can get it. And what that experience you had with like the really big producer, I think that that's actually a very common experience for people who were around in those days. And it actually is why a lot of like the really badass metal producers started producing in the first place is because they were in a band and they went to a studio and spent a bunch of money with someone who's actually a legitimately good engineer, but it just came out wrong. And it didn't come out wrong because the engineer sucked or the studio sucked. It came out wrong because the person doesn't or didn't understand exactly what goes into this kind of music. They just didn't. It's there was nothing nothing against them. They just you can't just like guess your way into doing death metal right. Like <laughs> no, gotta, no, yeah. So a lot of these people started producing on their own because they couldn't find anyone to to record their own projects for them. And I think you know, fifteen years later. That's why you've got people like Otero or Putney or yeah, this is- any any of these dudes that are fucking great at 
heavy music production. Yeah, it's. I also think it goes beyond that as well. I think because metal, when you actually think about the genre of metal, it's so vast in the different sounds. Like if you go between death metal and then more radio friendly metal, the the difference in production is so different. Yeah, and I think it's massive. The, it's huge. Yeah, I think it's probably bigger than a lot of other genres. I think that the, the, the subgenre so of sure. metal is just enormous. And it's it's gotten to a point where the producer has to have a speciality in that particular niche. Yeah. Um, because you wouldn't get someone that mixes or, you know, Iron Maiden or, you know, yeah. Saxon or, you know, bands like that to do a death metal or an extreme fast metal record like Necrophate. You just wouldn't do it because it's still so different. Yeah. Or like a deathcore record. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing about Otero though, is like... Yeah, I was about to say that. Yeah, he's super diverse and he gets all of, of that stuff. You know what I mean? Like, for example, you know, so he did our record, Archspire, uh, Cattle Decapitation, Allegion. All of these bands are different in their sounds. And, you know, then you have like Chemists, you know what I mean? And Aklis or however you pronounce their name. Akils yeah. or Ak how the hell do you say it? I'm not sure, but it's vastly different. <laughs> do you know the black metal band I'm talking about? Yeah. A-K-H-L-Y-S. Yeah. We're fucking badass. It sounds like it's supposed to sound in the realm that it lives in. And that's what Otero brings to the table is like he understands that like, all right, this is the band. This is the sound they're going for. Let's get that sound and not just like, you know, copy and paste those uh, ideas or that sound across every band he works with. Like, you know, all these bands have their own unique sound and it sounds uh, completely different from the tech bands or like the black metal bands or, you know what I mean? That's super important. And like, he's got it nailed, like really something else. That's weird to hear you say that. What? Weird to hear him say what? It's weird to hear him say that there's a guy that can do multiple different styles of metal and not just use a template. It's true though. It's yeah. true. He can, you can hear him do anything from like radio metal to like the most extreme black metal to like technical death metal to like anything in between. And it all sounds authentic. Yeah. That's awesome. You know, as a producer that even like skyrockets the valuability, valuability, his value, <laughs> his value <laughs> yeah. as a, as a producer, because with every band, he's going to be throwing out badass ideas and he can take those things that worked with that band and maybe apply it to your band, you know, Hey, like in his brain, Hey, this worked here. Maybe we can tweak this idea a little bit and maybe it can work here on a different genre. And now you have like experiences from a whole ocean of metal that is applied to like what you're doing. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But you know, I think that's super badass. You know, were you hesitant about working with a producer after your initial experiences? Yeah. <laughs> Even while I was there, I'm a piece of shit. So, uh, <laughs> so I had some, some rough times like dealing, like there would be like, there was one time I remember specifically, Dave was like, hey, we should change that down. And I was like, no, nah, man, fuck that. And I was like, okay. You know, I had to like, like literally right after I said, fuck that, I had to remember that like, come on, dude, <laughs> do, do the thing you told the other sure. guys to do. Be open-minded and listen, like you're a dummy. You came out and not be married to what you're doing. So it took me a minute because I'm so used to like doing everything my way and Mike's way. We're so used to that. So it was it was good to like see that happen and and like remember to stay humble about those situations because you don't know everything. That particular situation, I think only happened that one time. I just like wanted it to be, it was like one note was clashing by like, 
a certain way. And I thought it sounded cool, but like at the end of the day, it didn't sound that cool. And I don't even miss it. You know what I mean? Like at the end of it, you don't even miss those things. Just like, is it sick? Yeah. Okay. Well, it's going to help the overall thing. So just fucking kill your pride. You're not even going to remember it later. Interesting thing that you pointed out is you recognize that you should do what you were telling everyone else to do. I think though, one of the things that people, (laughs) people in that situation do is they'll oftentimes talk about how you should be in this type of situation, should be open-minded, should be willing to let things go, should be willing to let whoever's tightest play, uh, the part, all that stuff. But then when it comes down to it, they feel like in that moment, this is the exception. Right. So they're going to stand their ground because this is, yeah, you should be cool and open-minded about new ideas, but I'm right right now. Yeah. (laughs) There's a word for those kind of people. They're called (laughs) hypocrites. I've found myself doing that too. Oh yeah, we all do it. Yeah. Yeah. Acknowledging it is the beginning. Right. Which is what Malcolm did, which is a good thing. Yeah. The moment you said the word, you were like, wait a minute. No, let's do this. And it turned out better. It turned out better. It turned out like, you know, how it should have turned out in the first place if I wasn't an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, this note's too dissonant, dude. Just like realize that like the way you see this riff and how it sounds to you is one thing, but like in the long run, this melodic riff has this one dissonant part. Just change it to make it work. You know what I mean? Something so small, but like when you're sitting in your office or wherever you're, you're recording, man, sometimes you get so attached to the music that you're writing and it's so beneficial to have someone else come in and like at least talk it over with you about it. Like, you know, so it's not just like you getting wrapped up into how you feel about every single note that you changed and and how how it's supposed to be in this grandiose, like pretentious fucking masterpiece that you think it is or in your own head. You have to like have someone else say, you know what? That's not as good as you thought it was. And then you have to like re-examine that and be like, yeah, you're right. You know what I mean? That didn't happen a lot, but when it did happen, <laughs> when it did happen, I was open to it and I kind of saw it as it was being said, it was kind of like, like when you, when I was saying you, you play the song for somebody and you instantly know if it sucks or not, that was kind of like, okay, I heard them say it. And maybe I kind of thought it maybe in my head or something that like, it did kind of suck, but I was just married to how it's supposed to be in some other way. I don't fucking know. But having other opinions and, and uh, other people around that aren't in your band, uh, be involved is, is I'm not sure if we can ever not do that again, honestly, because the recording process itself, I don't think I learned much because one, I don't really record stuff like, you know, a lot of the drum recording and all that stuff or all the drum recording we've done in the past, you know, uh, Mike's done that tracking guitars. I've been tracking guitars for forever. So I didn't learn a lot from that, but I learned a lot from like being able to like be humble about what you're doing when you're like paying somebody money to, to do something. I mean, you're doing that for a reason. So you need to recognize that. Let them do their job. Yeah. Like you didn't go to them and say, Hey, we just want you to record. Like, why would we even do that? We could just do that. We've been doing that. You know what I mean? So it's, you know, it's an important lesson to learn. And I guess it's pretty valuable to be able to like accept that you're not right all the time. You know, what's interesting about people's vision for how something should be it's really hard to define when it comes down to it. Um, I think that a lot of times this is something I had to learn is that when I had a vision for the way something should sound, well, I'm not hearing 
that vision through speakers or headphones. It's just like this weird thing in my head that that doesn't actually exist in reality. So the way that that vision would have to be translated still has to go through a physical process where it can be recreated on speakers. And you need a, an expert to pull that off. And sometimes what we think is possible in our heads or the way we think we want it, like it doesn't actually translate into the real world that we live in where we actually hear sounds coming through the air at us. Like it, uh, it's not always compatible. Like people's vision isn't always compatible with reality. It's a hard lesson, I think, to learn that for the first time. Right. Not only that, but no one gives a shit, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> like you might think something's really cool because like it has this one interval in it or something. You know what I mean? Like that makes the whole riff is this one crazy interval. But like at the end of the day, you change it, it's still, you know, the same riff and like no one's going to care otherwise. Because they haven't heard the what it was originally. Exactly. They don't have the comparison. Right. You just got to remember that like, not even remember, just learn to understand that like your vision is one thing and you, you should definitely follow your gut on a lot of stuff. But at the end of the day, you're just like pulling teeth to just keep that in sometimes. A pointless fight almost. Yeah. Just do what's best for the whole thing and not like one note change. That's so ridiculous to get pissed about that. How dare you ask me to change this shitty note? <laughs> <You know? laughs> Depends how hard it is to play. If it makes my life harder, fuck that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just take the notes out. I'm kidding. <laughs> That's a lesson I need to learn. You know, take the notes out. What about, I guess, when it came to getting other people to change their parts, was that easier? Or is it one of those things where just like down to the individual when it's, when they're the ones in the hot seat, then it sucks. But easy to tell someone else. It was pretty easy in the studio doing that. I think, I mean, I think collectively, like if there was an idea change, uh, like Stevie, our vocalist, if there was something that needs to be changed, she was like down for it pretty much every time. There's like a couple things that like, you know, he kept and then he's like, this is why I want to keep it. And it's like, yeah, yeah, you know what? That actually makes sense. I think there's a difference between keeping something because you're attached to it and keeping something when you can explain why it's good. Yeah. When it's clearly the right decision. Yeah, I mean, last album was really easy to get through that stuff outside of me. I'm the asshole in the <laughs> band. So, <laughs> especially like, you know, we were tracking drums and like me and Dave, you know, in the studio, in the room. And we're like, you know, Spencer, why don't you try this thing? You know, it was super smooth. He was super receptive to it. And it's like, man, this is badass. Why, why didn't we think of this before, you know? Um, so I think uh, our particular band... It, it worked out easy. Brown, out of curiosity, because you're like the main writer or historically have been the main writer. How is it best to approach you to change something? How do you respond to it best? Normally it is like, no, it's really cool. And then I'll just think about it thinking, huh, that is actually a good idea. And then I'll just do it. So normally it's normally a reactive thing with me, but I'll try it anyway. Like, you know, um, normally I just react and I've definitely gotten better at that. Just as an example, like um, Mike's been recording the drums to the new album um, last week. And he was like, what do you think of this bit? And I was like, just do whatever you want to do. Right. Anything. As long as you don't play hi-hats. 
<laughs> because that is what John Otto does. And John Otto is the only person that can make it sound good. Like from Rimbiscuit? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, there was one bit and I was like, no, no, don't put hats there. And then in the end, I was just like, you know what? If you think it sounds good, then it's obviously good because you're the drummer. So you don't like hi-hats? No, I do. It was a joke. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, you never know. You frog dudes have weird uh, tendencies. I think what it was, I think it was the timbre of his particular hats in this bit. And I maybe heard it a different way. But to be honest, I've been pretty open with that stuff for the most part. Like when it came to, I remember there was one point on the Emanuensis where I was out the room and Mike played a drum part that meant that Chris had to change his vocal line in the right. song because it was so different than what was on the pre-prod. Right. And I didn't mm -hmm. even notice it until Chris mentioned it. I was like, not my problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't do vocals. I'm not I'm not the singer. <laughs> I'm not the singer. That's that's you. You gotta you gotta work around that one. Kinda is your problem if it's gonna add three weeks to the recording. Yeah. Oh yeah. That, I don't think it <laughs> was it's that added Chris three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> but like um a lot of the time as well, when it comes to the so even though I'll finish pre-prod, I try not to get attached to it. I try to leave certain things to chance in the studio. So say I'm recording guitars, if I'm in that moment and something else comes out, I'm just going to commit to it. Because if I think it was cool in that moment, then it probably was. Because I haven't really spent, had the time to fester. So what happens to the original idea? Just normally just out the window. Unless someone mentions something. So if someone mentions something when I send over the tracks, like, oh, I really liked that bit. Can you put it back in? Then yeah. I'll begrudgingly go back <laughs> and record Maybe that Maybe enhance bit. it a little bit. Yeah, just to recall that a little bit. But generally, like, I like to leave certain things to chance because I I believe that sometimes spur of the moment stuff makes it turn out a little bit better. I see that for sure. Spices it. It's like this, you know, adding salt and pepper to your steak. For sure. I feel like there's a percentage that you should allow for spontaneity on heavy recordings. Right. But <laughs> too much. And I think that it gets in the way. But like not enough. And who knows? Um, I, I think that it's a good idea to allow some room for spontaneity because you need to be open for to things getting improved. But I also think that people who go in with too little of an idea of what has to be done are not going to get enough out of the recording process. Like they're going to shortchange themselves by being unprepared, basically. I think that's a different situation, though. I think that, you know, with this style of music, everything needs to be finished. So you've already got everything finished, you know, exactly what you need to do. And all I'm saying is maybe accidentally on one take, you played a palm mute where it wasn't meant to, mm, or, right. or like a single note is slightly different, or maybe it's an eighth note later and stuff like this, but it still works with the rest of the record. That's what I mean by spontaneity. I don't mean like completely changing a fucking part, unless obviously the producer says, maybe you should try this instead. Right, right. So by spontaneity, you mean being cool with a mistake. Basically, yeah, a mistake that turns out to be a cool thing. Dude, I do that all the time when writing music. Yeah, and sometimes it doesn't happen like during the writing stage, maybe this one particular mistake, and you're like, oh yeah, that feels great now. I've got on the offbeat, it's sick. Yeah. Let's leave that in there. That's kind of what I mean by spontaneity, not like fucking not writing a riff and hoping it turns out all right. Yeah. You can't really do that with this, you know, with metal. People do it all the time though. <laughs> yeah, they do. Yeah? <laughs> it's not cool. <laughs> Terrifying. There's a, a part that in one of our albums that kind of goes in line with what Brown's talking about, where when we got the tracks to um, Mike when he was mixing it, the vocals started four bars earlier. They were supposed to start right when the song kicked in. And he threw it in. He 
you know, hit play to like, you know, feel it out. And the vocal started well before and then led up into the song starting. I was like, wait a minute, that was actually sick. You know what I mean? So we just kept it, you know, obviously, you know, move the other parts, other vocals back to where they went. But like when he hit play, it was like, wait a minute, this isn't right, but it sounds amazing. So we kept it in. I love when that shit happens. I love it. Because then it's like a fresh thing and it was a mistake, but it worked and it's better than it ever was before. You know, that's, I think that's what Brown's talking about. Yeah. And you probably wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah. No, never. Because it was supposed to start when the song, you know, it was just like, you start here. And it's just like, wait, never even tried it. I think it does take those mistakes sometimes just because we get locked into certain ideas that we don't even know we're locked into them. So yeah, you never would have tried that because like you said, vocals are supposed to start here and it's not even a question. They're just supposed to start here. Right. Why <laughs> would they start where they're not supposed to start? Shit like that's so cool to me. And like writing, there's been times where, you know, I'm chopping up a riff while I'm writing and I didn't grab it all. And then I moved it over. And then I was like, wait a minute, that's sick. And then you just keep it in, you know, because you didn't grab the whole riff. It's only a part of the riff. And you you just kept it in because, you know, at that point, you're a genius. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I'm a ge- How'd you think of that? I'm a fucking genius. Knowing in the back <laughs> of your head that you fucked up in the studio. And it's, whoops, but it sounds good. And yeah, one of the coolest riffs I didn't write, and I'm just saying I didn't write it because I didn't write it the way that it was finished was it got shifted over by an eighth note. It was a very busy riff, like a busy 16th note riff that was pretty standard the way it was. I was like kind of cool, but not that great. And then somehow it got shifted over an eighth note and suddenly it just had this insane groove and pattern to it. I was like, yeah, but I could have never written that. Could have never written that. <laughs> that stuff is the best, man. You know, that's where real genius is, is the fuck ups. I think sometimes yeah. one thing I do uh, when I'm writing, like if I'm stuck on something, like I'll, I'll just start playing guitar clean and just kind of like get a vibe going or something. What do you mean? If I'm going through like a, a writer's block spell, I'll just uh, play with a clean guitar or something like that and just kind of feel it out. I used to do it with an acoustic. I don't have an acoustic around anymore, but it just puts you in a different mindset. And then sometimes, you know, since I don't like really play with a lot of clean or acoustic, I'll, I'll fuck up something. And then like a cool melody would come out of that, that I'm like paying more attention to because there's no distortion. I'm not palm muting or anything like that. I'm like, well, wait a minute. I wasn't even trying to do that, but all right, let's, let's back it up here. And then that's when the idea sparks. It's like off of something that wasn't supposed to be, wasn't planned. It's just like, you're in the moment of like, I fucked up, but it sounds real sick. Let's, let's investigate this. And then you go back and you try to fuck it up again. And you're like, okay, well that's, that's it. Then it starts, the juices start flowing and then everything changes after that. Like those moments are like super sick when you, when you turn a mistake into a, a golden riff. So the clean stuff you're talking about, is it like playing death metal on a clean sound or is it like clean parts? Just clean parts. Just like, you know, something different. Yeah. Yeah. Just something I, I don't normally do just to focus on how the notes sound together you know yeah and not even not even the riff that i'm working on just like you know let's just play some chords let's arpeggiate some cool stuff and pretend like we're metallica or some shit and then you stumble upon cool shit that way breaking out of like you know i guess that kind of circles back to what we were talking about earlier but breaking out of your normal cycle of how you you operate 
you know, sometimes, you know, you, you find gold there, um, just not on purpose, or maybe it is on purpose, but I mean, those specific mistakes that you make can really turn into like a, a golden riff. So it sounds like uh, you're almost setting the stage for those mistakes to happen. Yeah, because I don't really play a lot of clean, like Mike plays all the clean shit live because I'm just <laughs> like, I'm going to fuck this up. <laughs> so, <know> I mean? <laughs> so yeah, so set up a scenario where you can let that just occur. It's funny that you only play on clean to when you get stuck. I find that I write 99% of everything I write on a clean sound without an amp plugged in, just the guitar really? electric by itself. I've written quite a bit of stuff that way, honestly. I just like the way it feels and the way it sounds like when you're just, there's no pressure to like, you know, have like a galloping Paul Meat badass riff or something. You're just playing along and you're just doing stuff, trying stuff out and hearing the notes on their own. And you're not worrying whether the distortion's going to ring out or right. you have to control it. It's like right. you're listening to the organic notes and whether they work together in a certain way. Exactly. I find it's just way easier to write like that. Yeah, that's a, a thing I've, I've been doing like since high school, just kind of like fucking around on clean or acoustic and stumble upon something cool that way. That's what I meant earlier by saying people should try to write stuff that stands alone or stands on its own. If you're writing like that, it has to be cool. Right. Because the there's no sick ass tone to hide behind. It's got to work musically. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes uh, like if I get in a rut with writing too, sometimes I'll switch to like trying to map things out in Guitar Pro. I'm sure that's probably a no-no. Why not? Yeah, exactly. It uses a different part of your brain, I think, because you're not focusing on, you know, your muscle memory to like play that same old riff again. <laughs> or play that same old scale again, you know, at that point, you're just kind of uh, going on like a, a super cerebral feel of like, okay, these notes sound cool together. Let's put it together. I have an idea for a cool rhythm. Let's add notes to it and see if the riff comes out. It's a little harder in my opinion, but like when you get the ball rolling on that and, and start to like hear how it organically starts to come together, you can really break some boundaries on on your writing from breaking away from the guitar in your hand because you're not focused on the whole experience of playing guitar. You're just worried about your mind and what notes sound good to you. And you're not limited, I guess. I think that where the no-no comes in... Is when you can't play it. When you can't play it. Yeah, when people are not connected to their instrument at all. Right, right. So they just are writing on a computer. Not like I have no problem with electronic music, but if we're talking about metal specifically, uh, guitar players writing on a computer who are not in touch with their instrument. It's not that they're breaking their boundaries. It's more that they're just writing stuff that can't exist in the real world. Yeah. <laughs> I see the benefit of writing without an instrument. Like you're not bound by your technique. You're not bound by having to learn how to play it right then and there. Right. And then that can actually get in the way of your creativity. If you're, if you write something that's above your ability at that point in time, your part of your mental energy is going to go towards being able to at least like hobble your way through it. Right. Whereas if you put in Guitar Pro, you don't have that concern. For sure. I just think it's important to not go too far to for where sure. it doesn't know your limits. feel good. Or it's got to actually translate to the instrument. Yeah, for sure. And there's been plenty of times where, well, actually, a, a lot of my solo project stuff, Below the Requiem, was written that way. And when push comes to shove, it was like, okay, well, it's time to learn how to play this. And it made me better. <laughs> I mean, I never like played beyond speeds that I couldn't play or, or wrote stuff beyond speeds I couldn't play. Uh, 
but like the technicality and all that stuff, all the small little nuances that you put uh, into, you know, Guitar Pro or whatever, you're like, okay, well, I'm going to have to learn how to do this and upgrade myself to do it. Or if it doesn't work, then you have to change the parts <laughs> to like yes. actually be what it's supposed to be and not like this weird, like, I just want to be necrophagist, you know. <laughs> we all want to be necrophagist, man. <laughs> but yeah, to me, like Guitar Pro sometimes can be no different than like me playing right here on the keyboard where I'm just like playing notes to like try to figure it out. You know, it's just a different tool. But if you go beyond the, the tool and like, you know, make it to where... You know, you can't do that shit. Keep practicing. <laughs> I guess it depends on the outcome, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, if you're writing just cool music that you never want to play live, then then fuck it, use it. But if you're wanting to play live and then you go to play live and you can't play it, then it's just going to be a room of disappointment. Yeah. I can't remember what band was like that, but the songs were sick, but they just couldn't play live. It was like back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know exactly who you're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> I can think of a bunch. Yeah. So I don't know who you're talking about. <laughs> but yeah, you never want to be in that situation. I guess as a musician that, you know, wants to play live, that'd be the biggest bomb to go up on stage and just not be able to play. I don't even see how you get to the point of like doing that. There's some structural shit that people will write into Guitar Pro, like completely unrealistic position shifts for instance, stuff like that. Uh, yeah, you can shift positions in a crazy way sometimes in a song, but like if it's happening too much, it's not going to be possible to really pull it off or like too much jumping around or like things that don't actually flow into it's each not other. Yeah, it's weird. Like you can't program swagger into it. That's also true. Or thinking time. So you're talking about these weird positions, like... There's a certain amount of speed that you can achieve with it. Then there's a certain amount that you can't. Yeah, and if you're going right. to be doing these crazy spider chords, jumping from like your first fret down to your 16th within 20 milliseconds, it's just not possible. Exactly. It might sound cool programmed, but maybe the solution is that if you're writing stuff like that, it shouldn't be arranged for guitar. Yeah, just get a pianist to play it because the pianist will probably be able to play it very easily. Yeah. <laughs> or a synth. Yeah. Yeah, or a synth. Yeah. Just have it on the synth in the background. I've been using a lot of synths lately just to like add a add a new new level of um atmosphere to our music instead of like the old orchestral vibe. I still do that too, but I don't know, changing it up like that is it's always good to have those melodic ideas like in a different instrument and not have it all be on guitar. You know, sometimes it's just it's better to switch things up like that. Well, it's a nice texture. Are you having like independent lines on synth or is it stuff where it will like outline the guitar? We have in the past had like, you know, like independent, like piano parts, you know, something that we're not playing live. That it's just like doing its own thing. There's not a, a bunch of that. I don't think on the, the newer album, there are, there are some, but they're probably, it's probably like 10,000 things going on. But <laughs> even on the, uh, on the album in particular, just for this example, there were times where like I had clean guitars doing something, but the piano was going. So it's like, why do both? Take the cleans out. You're not going to be able to have five guitars on stage. Let the piano do the part. That's what you wrote it for anyway. No reason to double it up with the clean guitar. So in that way, yeah, it's independent on its own without, you know, being um, covered up by another guitar part. So in, in that sense, yeah. Um, I haven't done a lot of that lately. It's definitely not outside of like a realistic thing that 
has been done before or will be done again. You know what I mean? Having those parts be independent can really make those parts special. I think that there's a really, really cool thing that happens sound-wise when you double a guitar with another instrument. Yeah. Metal mixers tend to hate it because they kind of want the guitar taking up all the sonic room. I think something really fucking awesome happens when you texture a guitar identically with something that's not a guitar. Lots of the prog bands used to do that in a way that I'm not crazy about where they would double a guitar solo with like a keyboard and it would sound like a racing game of yeah. the 80s. <laughs> I'm yeah. not into that. But that idea is a really good one. There's a lot of cool stuff you can do with that. Yeah, definitely. Well, you kind of think about the guitar as part of an orchestra and it's a mid-range instrument. So then you start filling out the space around it, maybe something that's lower range, something that's maybe even above it. And you can start getting some like really cool, almost octave exactly. kind of sounds if, you know, if you're playing in the same, in, you know, the same part in the same, um, you know, the same notes, maybe in different octaves, depending on what the instrument is. But yeah, it just gives it a slightly different texture than just the same old guitar sound, right? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> do you do that a lot in uh, in monuments? Like uh, play a lot of the riffs in, in, in different octaves between guitars? I know I do it. Yes, a lot. I kind of prefer that most of the time over adding harmonies. I used to add harmonies all the time now, just like, like the sound of octaves. I feel like it feels bigger in, in a way. It's almost like using shimmer verb. The funny thing is, though, is octave pedals don't really work for me. They never sound completely right. It's one of those things where it needs the the slight chorus effect you get of the two parts playing slightly out of time. But at the same time, I also like the exploration of playing on different instruments as well. So, you know, piano, even though it's kind of similar in terms of its timbre to the guitar, because it's obviously a string instrument, it just adds a slightly different texture that's cool. And obviously, if you've got the bottom end of the piano as well, it adds that really lovely, thick, deep bass to it as well, which obviously the reason that we play seven and eight string guitars because it's missing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, I mean, yeah, I um, what I was saying about doubling up the guitar with other parts, it definitely works. It just has to be done in a tasteful way. For sure. Playing a guitar solo with a keyboard that's meant to sound like a guitar isn't a cool way to do it. <laughs> I don't understand what the hell that was even all about because <laughs> piano... You can do so much shit on piano. You can't do on guitar. Right. Why do those keyboard players from those prog bands limit themselves trying to do guitar stuff? I never understood that. There's a couple of them that make it sound pretty wicked, to be fair. It could also be like the, you know, the keyboard sound that they're using is kind of like corny. Kind of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of corny. Kind of corny. Kind of very corny. <laughs> Cheese Very and corn. Kind of corny. Yeah. You know, one of my favorite things to do, we haven't done it a lot, but like using violin runs and like doubling that kind of thing up with, uh, with guitar, with riffs, um, and not really like, you know, shred or anything like that, but like, just like having a violin and cello, you know, in octaves, like alongside the guitar riff. It makes you feel very powerful when you're sitting at your desk. <laughs> <laughs> yes, dude. That's kind of like uh, Nia Bliviscaris, I guess, isn't it? Yeah. Like, that's kind of like what they're all about, which sounds wicked to me. It doesn't sound cheesy. It just sounds awesome. It's like a different take on that kind of orchestral death metal um, thing. So, yeah, I'm I'm really into that. That's what I mean, though, about doubling guitars with other instruments playing the same thing. It adds something that 
just adds something special when it's done right. There's like a power to it that a power or like a texture you just can't get out of a guitar alone. It morphs it into something else for sure. It's I don't want to say a wall of sound, but it, it just makes it more epic. Septic Flesh do it real well too. Yeah, Flesh God, I guess. Flesh God, yeah, Flesh God. Yeah, those those guys are like the masters. That fucking band sounds so outrageously good. Their song King. I just remember just my mouth being open for the whole fucking thing. It's just, I don't listen to much like death metal, speed metal or anything like that. I'm more like a groove slower guy. Right. Do you know what I mean? But I listened to that and it blew me the fuck away. It's just so intense, isn't it? <laughs> the violation is nuts. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah it's like so intense. And uh, the thing about them is everything is written so properly. Right. Yeah. Like so like legit in that Baroque style. And but it's not cheesy. I don't know how because usually when <laughs> I've noticed a lot of metal dudes do the Baroque thing, it kind of sounds like a different version of the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. <laughs> Beethoven, Beethoven with the drum beat. And it's just, I, yeah, that, that's I what I think that. of when I think of like metal dudes doing Baroque stuff. Generally, is Beethoven with the drum beat. But Flesh God do it fucking great. It's not just Beethoven with a drumbeat. Yeah, they're basically a movie score. Do you know what? It just made me think. I can't think of a metal band that's had a single harpsichord in it. Flesh God. We have a harpsichord. <laughs> See, that's what I want to hear. You love harmonic minor, there needs to be a fucking harpsichord. Yeah. One of these long-ass <laughs> intros that we should have cut out was a harps harpsichord. Was <laughs> uh, send, me the, send me the track. I want to hear that because I love the sound of that instrument. I might actually just have to bring that back. Yeah, it's, a, it's it's one of my favorites. It's like when I was younger and I was playing guitar and then I used the pick to like pick up below the, the nut of the guitar. Yes. Pluck, pluck around those strings that like, it's like, I wonder what this sounds like. I'll be the first person to ever try this. And it's, it sounds like dog shit, but like on a harpsichord, it has that, that uh, timbre of uh, like super high pingy. And I love the sound of it. It's really sick. People should use that more. A lot of people don't like it, but they're stupid. So it's I fine. fucking love it. Yeah, a lot of people are <laughs> stupid, but that's a different conversation. So we don't have a ton of time left. There's one thing I definitely want to cover. The way that you hold your pick, because we talk about that kind of stuff all the time. And uh, you have a unique way of holding the pick. I kind of hold it like a pencil because I used to draw. And that was like the first thing I thought of. When I, whenever I first picked up a guitar with a pick, it's like, I guess I hold it like this because I can control it the best that way. I'm like trying to imagine what that's like. And then I realized I haven't used a pencil in so long yeah. <laughs> that I can't imagine what it's like to hold one. So. Yeah. What I used to do a long time ago was like mount my pinky a lot to where like, like I was drawing on a table, you know? Like, like an anchor point? Yeah. I mean, I still do it, but like I used to do it like, like pretty, like, stupidly when I first started and now I just kind of developed it to a different way. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's basically holding a pencil with two fingers. That way I can use minimal like arm movement. I, I don't really like use my shoulder or arm or anything like that when I play. It's just like all wrist and, and fingers. Oh, so you actually move your fingers backwards and forwards like this. Sometimes, yeah. Like if, if I'm doing like, um, like some economy picking, it kind of helps me do it like just a little bit kind of, um, do like a like when I do some solo runs or something like that and use economy picking, I kind of like make circular movements to like hop between the two strings and the, the one string. I don't know. It's kind of hard to explain without showing you. But um, yeah, th there's some movement in there. You get more control. I can't. I The only time I ever really play like a traditional guitar player is uh, 
if I just pick up a pick and I dropped it on stage or what, and I just picked one up and we're doing like tremolo and I was just like hopping it that way and then like reposition. But like, um, I just don't play with the, I can't do the, the string skip, uh, palm muted notes with that traditional style. I can't hit the notes with integrity. I guess that's just because I haven't really tried to play properly. It's just like what comes to me as a guitarist. So it seems to me like you developed a technique just because that's how you started and it just turned into what it turned into, but you've come across some like technical barriers with it. Like you just said, like skipping and certain things. You said that you shift back and forth position wise, pick position wise. Does that slow you down at all? No. For example, like when I hold my pick, what I consider my normal way, I can't do pinched harmonics that way. I switch immediately before every pick harmonic and then switch back. One thing I've noticed like that some really great lead guitar players do is that they'll switch pickups almost automatically. Like they don't think about it. And I think that until you're used to just getting in the rhythm of like play, 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 switch, play, play, switch, switch, you know, like all that stuff, it seems like it would be uh, cumbersome, I guess, like cumbersome to try to do that. But I guess if you're used to it, it's just like anything else. Yeah. I I never noticed a difference. It was just like our old vocalist who used to play guitar in the band or not in the band, but he played bass, but he played guitar and he showed me how to do uh, pinch harmonics. It's just like, well, I guess I can play normally and then just uh, move my hand a certain way and my thumb will just move right over onto the string and over the pick like it would normally and then just move it back. It's just kind of like a, like a little movement that happens and uh, goes on from there. There's another thing where like I'm playing and I'll hold my, my pick like this, like in between my middle finger if I'm tapping and I just like, you know, I'll play and then like switch it over. It's hard to do with these small ones. There's a way to just like hold a pick in the middle of your hand. And once you get used to doing that, it just comes naturally. So you also tap with your first finger? Not so much anymore, just because after switching to these uh, small jazz threes or whatever, it's like super hard to like uh, pocket the pick in the, in the fingers. But so now I just kind of like use my middle finger. And a lot of times we don't really have a lot of tapping going on anymore in our music that much. But whenever I do, I'm usually like picking the first note anyway, just to get the maximum volume out of it. So I'm just holding the pick and then using the middle finger. But back when I did use the the first finger, I would just like tuck the pick right in between the third segment of my middle finger while playing and then move along and put put it back. I think that a lot of guitar players do shift their picking hand technique depending on what they're doing even just going between alternate down picking and then say you were switching to economy, there's a different position of the hand that happens. And I think it happens subliminally after, a you know, you've been playing for a certain amount of time. I think that there's micro changes between everything, you know, going between tapping. I mean, you see it on your fretting hand, say you're playing a D chord. Most of the time your thumb's, thumb's going to be over the top of the neck when you're playing a D chord. And if it's not, then you're an alien. Yeah. So, and, <laughs> and then if you're switching to sort of like a riffy thing, then your thumb's on the low string, your thumb's probably going to be further back. Just For sure. You reach. And I think the same thing happens with the picking hand. So going between pinch harmonic and then your usual technique sounds like a pretty normal thing. I think I even change my pick technique when I'm doing pinch harmonics. Right. Sometimes your fingers aren't shaped like everyone else's. So like that fat part of your finger that you need to hit the string with, you know, that's going to be in a different spot for, you know, everyone else. Even when you 
play traditionally, you got to find that one sweet spot to move around to. And then if you were to look down and watch, you'd be like, wait a minute, I changed that shit up. I didn't even realize it. You know, honestly, now that I am thinking about it, there are parts of like solo runs and stuff like that where like I'll change the pickup because I'm doing like an ascending run or something. And it's easier for the pick to like go into the strings that way, as opposed to when I'm normally playing the string is like, or the, the pick is facing upward, I guess. And I, I don't know anything about which way it's slanting, but like it's, it's facing towards like the fretboard and not down. Holding my pick like that helps me with the, the string skipping stuff that way because I can catch all the notes easier coming up holding the pick that way. I don't know. There's just like a lot of small nuances that like when you sit down and think about it, we all do these weird things that like if, if one person mastered every little thing, they'd be the best guitar player ever and nothing could stop them. You know what I mean? Like all these little tools and tricks um, that we, we, we do just out of like desperation to be able to play it. And not, and not know it's not desperation, but you know, just a necessity, I guess. It sounds like I need to buy one of those magnet clamps and record everyone's hand. Yeah, yeah. In slow mo. <laughs> What's that guy's name? Tom Grady or something? Someone actually recorded my hand with one of those magnet oh, really? clamps. Yeah, yeah. I've got a video of it. Obviously, it's, I had to check that out. Nah, it's not anywhere. I mean, oh. only I've got it. Oh, okay. <laughs> How did it work out? Were you disappointed? No, it was good to see what was going on. I think that that's like a really good thing that everyone can do just to sort of see, all right, I'm maybe there's too much space between the string and my hand, or maybe my hand position could be a little bit better if I did this. So it was pretty, it was pretty eye opening just to see it. Yeah. I might have to try that out somehow, just set it up and just to see. I've always been curious. All you need is an iPhone, slow motion. Yeah. And then, yeah, just that magnet grip. It was actually pretty eye opening. So yeah, I do recommend it. Sick. I'll have to check that out. Then you can see what you're actually doing, which yeah, is yeah. obviously a positive <laughs> thing. What is that thing? Like, I'm sitting here listening to you guys. It sounds fascinating, but I have no idea what you're talking about. It's a clamp that goes on the neck. So it's literally looks like a magnet. So it's called the magnet clamp. And then it opens up. You can put like a, a camera or mm. phone on there and it points directly down towards oh, your picking okay. hand. And then, um, yeah, you can just put your phone in there, slow motion, um, record it, and then it slows it down to whatever speed, and then you can actually physically see what is going on from that perspective. Yeah, like if you were to put a GoPro there or something, you know, but it's like a clamp. It's pretty sick. I can't remember the guy's name on YouTube, but he has like a whole YouTube channel based on this. Like he has like um, crazy shredders that like come in there and, and get magnet clamped. Yeah, they get clamped on, dude, and uh, <laughs> slows it down. And they all have like different techniques and like how they cross the strings. It's, it's really fascinating. I think is, I, th I think I know his last name is Grady. I want to say Tom Grady, but I think that's wrong. <laughs> I've got a picture of it here. Let me see what the manufacturer. It's called the Magnet, and it's by Troy Grady. Troy Grady, that's it, dude. His YouTube channel is sick. I mean, yeah, for me, what it was like, you know, when you see that, there's that um, YouTube video series called the Slow Mo Guys. Yeah, and they always get this camera that's like 20,000 frames a second or something <laughs> yeah. crazy and then you can see like bubbles bursting and I always thought it would be really cool to see it at that level of detail with that level of quality to really analyze what every guitar player is doing and I can imagine that 99% of the time everyone's doing something completely different like a fingerprint almost yeah yeah very crazy stuff sounds interesting okay that is not what I anticipated at all. It's just like right above the strings and shit. So that's a real device. Yeah, that's the guy, Troy Grady. He has a whole YouTube channel based on like analyzing all these sick shredders, man. You should check it out. That device looks uh, serious. Yeah. <laughs>
Yeah, I think he actually asked me. I had someone ask me to slow mode down my hand. I decided not to do it. Oh man, because I'm I'm teaching people guitar, and I feel like that that would uh, it's something yeah, yeah. that would be useful for me. Right, right, right. <laughs> but no, it's like as I say, um, a guy had one of those when I was at Forty Two Gear Street last year. A guy called Max Solo also has his own YouTube channel. Russian guy. And he nice. did it for me. And it, yeah, dude, it was just, it was eye-opening. It was really good. And, you know, I think that just falls in that you don't really know what you're doing until you record yourself. Right. And on that, that's like, that's like the fourth dimension. You know what I mean? Like you're seeing it from a completely different perspective that you couldn't see on your own ever. It, that just takes me straight back to Interstellar when he's in the yeah. Tesseract. Dude, exactly. <laughs> that's exactly what that is. <laughs> Hell yeah. I think that uh, professional sports players have this kind of analysis, like baseball players have this kind of analysis on their swings. Right. They will perfect everything. I mean, they've got millions of dollars on the line. So, <laughs> of course, they're going to be <laughs> analyzing all their movements with this kind of uh, precision. But I bet you that if guitar players were to really get serious about this type of tool and like apply that the way that athletes use these types of tools. I mean, we've already got some amazing guitar players out there, but you would see like maybe the next tier. Yeah. For millions of dollars. <laughs> I can imagine seeing like um, Rick Graham under that thing. Or Wes under that thing. Yeah. And it's, I bet you it's just like perfect, like no loss of movement completely yeah they're not wasting any energy it's just kinetically sound yeah or they'll look at it and think fuck i've got to work for 20 million hours to fix this tiny little problem yeah, that's yeah, probably that's... more likely <laughs> but let's be honest if uh, someone's willing to give us millions of dollars to analyze and make our technique better i'll do fucking anything yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> i am right there with you dude simon is the same team yeah yeah awesome well malcolm it's been a pleasure talking to you i think it's a good place to end the episode i want to thank you for taking the time to hang out with us thanks for having me and congratulations on announcing your album release today thank you sir i appreciate it guys i was not kissing his ass when i was talking about his new music by the way Oh, yeah, he's fucking phenomenal. You know I don't kiss people's asses, but I feel like I need to say that. Just because uh, even though I don't consider what we do to be interviews, like I actually, whenever someone says that it was a really good interview, I feel like it was a compliment. But part of me is like, this wasn't an interview. It was a conversation. <laughs> we don't do interviews. But, uh, but I do feel like lots of times when people go on interviews, the interviewer is licking their butthole about their music. And maybe they haven't even listened to it. They're just reading off of a press release and just complimenting them. And so <laughs> it's important for me to just state that I don't do that shit. I'm not going to compliment something I don't actually uh, think is good. That <laughs> I was very impressed by his new music. Funny thing is, I just remember this one interview while you were saying about kissing ass. And I remember one interview saying is, uh, oh, I really like your new music. It, sound, it reminds me of Morbid Angel. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, they said that to us once. And I, uh, I'm, I'm st I still don't really understand the, the answer to that. <laughs> so had he heard it? Well, I mean, what do you think? I mean, Morbid Angel. No. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it was funny. But I know you actually listened to it and it was absolutely amazing. That new album sounds fantastic. It's a lot of notes, very technical, very Malcolm, actually. Yeah, <laughs> very technical, but musical. And so it doesn't sound to me like it's 
technical for the sake of technical. It just sounds to me like music that happens to be technical because it's so intense. Yes. And Malcolm really knows what he's doing. He knows what, what he wants to achieve. And that's the difference when you have technical music where someone's just trying to show off versus when someone's trying to um, sort of show an emotion. And I think that's where Malcolm's music, he really does that very, very well. Yeah, absolutely. It, it sounds musical uh, and there's feeling there. It's interesting because lots of times people will, I guess, uh, associate high levels of technique and speed with non-musicality. And my challenge to that is the two don't have anything to do with each other. People can be very non-musical and have no technique too. (laughs) (laughs) Being non-musical is a whole other problem and it's not relative to technical ability, in my opinion. Like someone who is super musical can have low levels of technique and still be awesome, aka Kurt Cobain, or they can be, you know, they can have super high levels of technique and be very musical, aka Malcolm or Dean Lamb or whoever, or Mishuga. Like the musicality and the technique, they don't go together necessarily in terms of where there's more of one, there's more of the other or less of the other. It doesn't work that way, in my opinion. No, they're complete opposite ends of the spectrum. And I've spoken about this in the podcast before that there's this middle ground where I see people that can't play their instrument and then you've got the technically proficient and somewhere in the middle that you can sort of be both where you can be, you know, someone that doesn't necessarily have the technique but can write really good versus someone that has all the technique and can't write. And then on that spectrum, there's obviously many different points along that spectrum, but being in the middle is definitely possible as well, where you're completely technically proficient and also a very, very good musical songwriter, which is where Malcolm sits. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, people who are amazing at guitar who can't write worse shit. People who are terrible at guitar who can't write worse shit. And then people who are amazing at guitar and can write great stuff. And people who are terrible at guitar who can write great stuff. Malcolm just happens to be one of those people that's fucking great at guitar (laughs) and can write really cool stuff. Yep. A rarity. It's a rarity. (laughs) Well, I think it's a rarity um, because, well, first of all, there's not that many people who can write good stuff. So I think there's, that's more of a rare talent than technical ability. So you, you'll get a lot more people who can play, but who can't write just because being able to create stuff that's good, there's just less people who can do that, in my opinion. And also, it's it's also the amount of time that's spent. Like, uh, you can spend all the time in the world on technique. Well, that, that, yes. That but you also need to spend the same amount of time on learning to write songs. It's a completely different, almost like a different master, in a way. Same amount of time, or at the very least, same amount of priority. Yes, that's probably a better word. Yeah, because there's you can't really. I feel like you can't really attach time to writing the way that you can to practicing. Like, I'm going to spend 30 minutes on scales, and by the end of this run of scales, well, this session, I'd like to be one percent faster, or one BPM higher, or half a BPM higher. Like, it's it's a lot easier to track the technical stuff like that. Um, whereas with writing. You don't know. Like you could write the entire song in 30 minutes and it's perfect. Or it could take you six months. Like who knows, right? So it's hard to attach time to it. 
Yeah, it is. And the worst part about being a musician is when you write a song in only 30 minutes. I've never done it, but I've written a song in one day before. And I automatically feel like it's not any good because I haven't put the time in. And I think musicians often, you know, fall down that rabbit hole. Well, the thing is, there are elements of music where they go together, like technical ability. The more time you put into it, probably the better you're going to be. Now, there's exceptions where people could put in a lot of unfocused time, think that they're working on the right stuff and they're working on the wrong stuff. And so they could practice, quote unquote, practice 12 hours a day and not get that much better. But my argument against that is, um, yeah, they put in a lot of time, but on the wrong stuff. But still, getting better at your instrument does require a lot of time. A lot of time. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's why I think that when someone does just write something and it just comes out the way it should be, it messes with their understanding of what it takes to get better at music. I agree. It's two completely different aspects, though. So uh, I think people should learn to learn to accept it when something is great. It's tough because sometimes people can't tell that it's great yet. They don't want to feel like they didn't develop it to where it was meant to go. The hardest part about songwriting is learning when to abandon it because you never truly finish a song. Abandon <laughs> it as in stop working on it or abandon it as in delete it? Abandon it as in stop working on it. If you, you know, it's kind of like mixing in a way. There's a point where it sounds great and then you keep tinkering and you're just making it worse and worse and worse. It's finding that perfect moment when to say, no, this is done. Yeah, absolutely. That is really, really hard. <laughs> yeah. I also think one thing that's really hard is uh, knowing when and how to finish a song that you started. Like uh, say that you have a few riffs and you think they have some potential, but you just don't know where to go with them. And it's like, do I keep going on this? Do I start something new? Uh, I mean, you see that all the time with King of the Riff, right? A riff rescue. Yeah, it's really difficult to know when to stop or sometimes it just needs time, you know, or maybe a different set of ears. Like there's been times when I've not finished a song for two years, but I haven't worked on the song for two years. Something sparked later on. Say I had, you know, most of the song written and I just didn't know where to go with it at this particular point. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, I listen to it again for the first time in a, in a month or two, and then it will come to me, I'll hear it. And I think that time space away from it and hearing it in a different perspective can help a lot. Um, and when it comes to, you know, riff rescue, it's exactly what I do. I take one of our members riffs or even songs and I see where I can go with it in the moment. And that can be really helpful for people to hear it from someone else's perspective on what someone else would do, which is why having other people listen to your music, even in the demo phase is so important just to see I guess their reaction. And even Malcolm said that. He knows the moment that he presses the space bar when he's about to show someone his new song, he knows in that moment whether or not it's good or not. And I think that's a very, very powerful point. I would 100% agree with that statement. Yeah, I agree with it too. What, so what's the biggest problem you find on the Riff Rescue submissions? It can be a number of different things. Like um, sometimes it's there's too much information crammed into one small part and you can 
you know, take pieces of that riff and create a whole song just with the information you've got. I find that a lot, you know, you know, we spoke about this being overly technical. It doesn't just, just because it's technical doesn't necessarily mean it's good, but the sum of all the parts could make something good. And I see that quite a lot with the riffs on Riff Rescue. And sometimes it's just that people just don't know where to go. Like they write a riff, they try and write a second riff that has no correlation to that first riff when you have all the information in the first thing that you write as to, you know, then you should know where to go because you've, you know, say you've got five notes, just try playing those notes in different ways. Maybe an octave higher, maybe play them in a different order or try playing one note on the lowest string, one note on a higher string and start swapping about. And a lot of the time people don't think to work on the music that they've already got. They try and constantly create new, but then the song has no, it's kind of like a riff salad. It doesn't have any, I can't remember the word that I'm thinking of right now. It doesn't have any cohesion. Cohesion. Yeah. I guess that's the word. And I see that a lot, just ideas coming from nowhere. And where I learned that from was my music teacher. And uh, I guess it was a product of symphonies and classical music where you would never introduce an idea without giving the audience a part of it first. You have to introduce what you're going to next. And that's kind of like my whole philosophy for writing. Nothing's ever random. It's always given as like a little nugget in some way or another. And I think that's a really important thing to do when songwriting. So it doesn't sound like a riff salad, which let's be honest, progressive metal does have a very bad... (laughs) A lot of it is riff salad. Yeah, it's like almost like a song should have some sort of a DNA to it that's inherent throughout. Yeah, just if you progressive to me says to me that I'm going to be taking on a journey and the start point is going to be related to the end point in some way or form. Uh, The way I see it is a song is like telling a story. Every song, uh, every story has a beginning, middle and end. And often or not, People don't think about that when they're writing music. It's just like, oh, that riff works going into that riff, which works going into that riff. But it's like, well, how does that relate to the beginning of your song? Yeah. Sometimes you just need someone to show you how to do that. I think so. Yeah. And you can do that with Riff Rescue. I'm here. Hi. Exactly. (laughs) Well, yeah. Get your riffs rescued. Riffhard.com. Do it. Yeah, definitely do it. I enjoy it. It's really, really fun. It's a good live stream. Awesome. Well, Brown, it's been a pleasure talking to you as always as always mate i'll see you next week thanks for listening to the riff hard podcast we'll see you next week